It's a, oh, there we go. Good morning. Uh, it's, a, it's a joy to share with you this morning what God's laid on my heart for today. We're going to start off in Psalm chapter 8 this morning. If you were here with us for the music, we, that's what we read during the music time. Psalm 8, it's a pretty short chapter. Um, it's a pretty classic gem. Uh, if you've read or if you've heard Psalms before, this is probably one that you've, you've heard. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read through the full chapter of Psalm 8. It's not very long, and it kind of has some symmetry in it, which I tried to pull out a little bit with the slides, just how it starts and ends with a de- declaration of God's majesty, with in the center this um, pondering of how insignificant humans are, and yet how God has ele- elevated them. Um, and then in, be- in between both of those is just... Uh, thoughts about how miraculous and and majestic God is. Let's read it together. I'm going to read out of the NLT for this one. O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Your glory is higher than the heavens. You have taught children and infants to tell of your strength, silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, What are mere mortals that you should think about them? Human beings that you should care for them. And yet you made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them charge of everything you made, putting all things under their authority, the flocks and the herds and all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and everything that swims in the ocean currents. O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. So last week, we looked at kind of the Bible's perspective on, on life in general, on human life, yes, but that, that life, according to the Bible and the message of the Bible, life is real um, and it matters. And what we do and we say in this life has the potential to have an impact in eternity, even though we know that this life in, in some ways is temporary. And we don't need to be overwhelmed by the the weight of the world, so to speak, of knowing that, yes, what we do has impact for all eternity, but no amount of human failure has been able to usurp God's power to redeem humanity's mistakes and failures and scars into something beautiful. And Christ was given to us. God himself came to bear the weight of the world on his shoulders so that we don't have to. But then knowing that we have been given this, this authority and this, this uh, purpose with God should motivate us, to energize, energize us to worship him. Whether that's by serving him and doing things for him and with him, or simply just by declaring his majesty. And God gives us life and purpose and identity, and through Christ, there is a specific way of life that we can learn. And that way of life cultivates the fruit of the Spirit of God saturating, in our, saturating our lives. And that's where we find true joy and, and peace and fulfillment in life, regardless of our circumstances and unhappiness and pain. And everything else marred as it is by sin in our lives. So today we're going to look a little bit closer. That's, that's a little overview of what we looked at last week. Today we're going to kind of hone in more on the human aspect, what the Bible says about humans specifically, what are we, uh, and what is our purpose as creatures in relation to God and the rest of creation in the Bible. Genesis 
describes God creating humans out of the ground. We're going to read a, a little, few excerpts from Genesis in a minute. The Hebrew name for the first man, Adam, that, that word, it's used as a name in Genesis, but it's also used interchangeably as kind of a generic term for human. Right? Is, is that, is everyone kind of familiar with that concept? Adam also means human in the Bible. That word itself, though, is a play, Adam in Hebrew, Adam is how it's pronounced, that is a play on the word Adama. Right? Adama is just one syllable, one extra vowel at the end, and that means dirt or earth or uh, soil. <laughs> so it's, it's a play on the word earth, and it's, so the, the name Adam and even the, the title of human really sounds like dirt thing or um, earthling, if you will. Earthling is kind of an English word, but it's this mud creature, a dirt creature, dust thing. That's what it, the, Adam uh, sounds like. And it's a reference in Genesis to a, a specific individual man, but also represents all of humanity. And the story of Adam and Eve is representative of the rest of the story of, of humanity. And it is only by the life-giving breath, the spirit of Yahweh, the creator, that this dirt thing, a sculpture, attains a spirit, a soul, a life. A clay sculpture, basically nothing more than a marble statue, beautiful, <laughs> chiseled by the most amazing artist ever, but still lifeless until God breathed his very life force into that, that creation. So a clay sculpture turned into a living being and of eternal and divinely appointed significance and purpose given to that being by God. Without God, all humans, we are all nothing but dust. But God has lifted us up as a, as, as a species, if you will, or, or as a type of creature in creation with authority. And, and of course, humanity, you look across the history of you know, the Bible and, and just human history, we've squandered that authority. Except for one, one human, Jesus, who is God incarnate. He redeemed and possessed that authority on behalf of all the rest of, of humanity and on behalf of all humans who will trust in him. And as a result, those of us who believe in him can cast off our, our burdens, the temporary burdens of sin, and cling instead to the glorious and eternal inheritance that we have in Jesus. That's an incredible place to be from a lifeless chunk of mud to this incredible thing. That's kind of the main nugget that, I, that I'm presenting you with today, and we're just going to look at a few scripture passages to help bring this uh, to light. So we're going to start in Genesis 1. The biblical uh, creation accounts, uh, again, it, it describes people being created out of the ground. So the humans are part of the natural world. They're part of creation, uh, along with the trees and the animals and, and the birds. They're all created by God in, um, as part of creation. But then humans are also specially related to God in a way kind of like other spiritual beings are, like the angels. And the psalmist is, is in Psalm 8 tapping into this. Humans make their first appearance on the sixth day of creation in Genesis 1. And after creating the rest of the world and all of the animals, he cre God creates a new type of creature as a caretaker for the rest of his created 
creatures. So he describes this first in Genesis 1, chapter, or verse 26. It says, God said, let us make man in our image. And in this case, that word man is a generic humanity. Let us make people human in our image, according to our likeness, so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea. Notice that they, let us make man so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female. He created them together, male and female, the image of God. And then that's part of the first creation story in Genesis. And then in in Genesis chapter 2, we get uh, another telling of creation from a slightly different perspective. And in verse 7, we get to where God is forming the human. And it's a little bit more descriptive here with Yahweh forming man of dust from the ground. It says he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. It's just all the more detailed with the imagery. And that imagery becomes a pattern that you can see throughout the rest of Scripture, God's breath, his spirit, and, and his nostrils even. Um, it's a fun thing to track through Scripture. And it's at that point in verse 7, when Yahweh breathed into his nostrils, then the man became a living being, a spiritual being. And then uh, you skip down to verse 19, the man gave Uh, Sorry, out of the ground Yahweh God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky. Again, out of the ground. The beasts and the humans both came out of the ground, but then the humans were placed over the animals. He brought each, all the animals, to the man to see what he would call it, and whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to uh, to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So pausing here just for a second, I think it's really cool the first assignment that God gave to Adam was was naming the animals because it's a creative action. It's an act of imagination and, and creation to name something. And by naming something, Adam declared a thing to be true that was not true before. So in a way, he was kind of creating a truth like God. But it's, it's a name, so no matter what he named it, whatever came out of his mouth isn't going to hurt anything, right? So God gave him this assignment with total freedom to create these names. And I just think that's so cool. And if you actually look at some other literature, like the, the beginning of the, the Quran, the angels are described as being jealous of the humans for how much authority they were given. So there's even in other cultures and religions, this idea of why were humans given so much? Anyway, that was a, got sidetracked there. Um, the man gave names, but he couldn't find, you know, the man by himself, at this point in the story, he's still by himself. He can't multiply. He can't reproduce and fill the earth with more humans. He can't image himself like God imaged. Um, so he, he's, he needs uh, a woman. So that's what happens next. Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. Yahweh God fashioned the rib which he had taken from the man into a woman, and he brought her to the man. So these humans, they're uniquely created in God's image, both of them. 
And together they're to be God's agents in ruling other creatures and in caring for the earth. That was their task and their blessing. And throughout the Bible, you see that term humans, or you know, adjacent words, being used in contrast to other types of spiritual divine beings, like God, the angels, other you know, spirits and demons. There's lots of different other words that are used that are not human words, right? And then there are also, the humans are also held in contrast to the rest of the created physical world, right? The animals. And there's, so the humans are in this special place. They're, they're lower than God, and they don't have as much power as some other spiritual beings, spiritual power, but they do have authority over things that God gave them. And so there's, there's this special category. They're spiritual beings and they're physical beings. And they're, they're uniquely created in God's image. Not even the angels are described as being created in God's image the same way that humans are. All of creation reflects God, but humans reflect God in a special way. Now, a note about Eve. So the man was formed first out of the ground, given breath, life by God. And then the woman was formed out of the man, for the man. Right? And even 1 Corinthians says that the woman was created for the man and not the other way around. Now, what does that mean? Because that can start to get hairy pretty quickly when you start saying things like that. Uh, if you look at the, so the, the wording in Genesis, is really interesting because it says Adam, God took Adam and, and divided him, split him in two, basically. It's the, the word where you might say it took his rib or took from his side. The word is he was divided. He was split in two. And then they were told for the two to become one. <laughs> that's such a, no other part of creation. All the other animals were created male and female, right? Male, the human was created male in God's image and then split apart to be male and female and told to become one. That's so unique. <laughs> and so interesting. Then the word that, um, what do you have in verse 20 where it says God fashioned, is, or he built uh, this woman um, as a what? What's the noun or the adjective used? It's actually a noun. What is it? Verse 20. To I think it's verse 20. Helper? Helper? Helpmate? Helpmeet? Something like that? I thought it was in verse 20. Yeah, verse 20. The man gave names. Adam was not found a helper suitable for him. So what he's looking for is a helper. In, in the LSB, it says helper. Does anyone have anything other than helper? Because there are some other uh, words that the Hebrew word is azer. And it can be translated as helper, and usually this place it's translated helper. In other places in the Bible, it's translated as salvation or um, it, the type of help that can only come from God, from Yahweh. So usually when you see this word being used, it's Yahweh providing Azer to Israel in their time of need. Right? So that's kind of the same image where God is building a salvation for Adam out of himself and, and providing that, that salvation to Adam. So it's, the Eve was provided to Adam for him because Adam could not fulfill his purpose without her. That's, that's the, and not that marriage in general, that people have to be married to fulfill God's uh, purpose or to fulfill their purpose as humans. So it's not even just marriage, even though Adam and Eve are a 
model of marriage, humanity as a whole is meant to reflect God, both male and female, men and women. Whether married or not, the church as a whole is meant to be both men and women, women serving God and, and worshiping him in different ways. And men and women have different roles in marriage, in the church, in families, in, in, in life. Men and women are different. That's not what this message is about. Um, but men and women both were created to glorify God, and they are each other's um, helpmates, and we, we complete each other in a way. Like, we are our own people. We don't need our spouses to be our own people in that sense, but in a very real sense, God created us to live together and to live as family units. Um, even if we're not, we don't have our own um, individual marriage or, or family units, that's what the church is as well. So we all have family to live as each other's um, partners and azers. You know, azer isn't only for marriage. Azer is, I see even in my kids, they are each other's, they're like helping each other grow and live together. It's, it's a beautiful thing. So I like that word azer. It's much more than just a helper or an assistant. And that's kind of the main point I want to drive home today as we move on. You read through the rest of the story of scripture, you see the humans fail uh, over and over again. Their role in creation sort of shifts in that they become exiled kings on, on the earth in their own, you know, the place that they were supposed to be kings and queens. They're sort of exiled and no longer given the same sort of authority, and yet they still are called to the same purpose. And God still wants them to work alongside him in redeeming creation and in fixing all of the problems. It's like when, when my kids make a mess and I want them to help me clean it up. Like, yes, I'm going to take care of it, but I also want her to become a part of it and learn through that, and it's going to be better for everyone. And no matter what, again, every time humans fail, even when humans fail, they still are glorifying God in some way. God is being glorified. Because God is always in control. And even when our own tiny view of the world seems to be completely lost to chaos, we know that God is in control and can see so much more than we do. But then at, the, at their best, you know, when we actually do cooperate with God, humans do get to still participate at times in, the, in that original purpose. We do still get to become redemptive agents of life and representatives of God in the midst of chaos and darkness the way Jesus was. Now, so again, without, going back to Adam and Eve, they were different from them. We're different from them in almost every way. Their world, their culture, everything they saw in the Garden of Eden and their relationship with God, like we can barely even imagine that. But if we do know they were made of the same basic stuff, the same elements the same flesh and blood, DNA that over thousands of years has become degraded, but you know, they were probably much stronger and more beautiful than any of us, you know, because they were perfect DNA. But other than that, you know, they were they were made of the same basic physical things. And other than you know, the Bible doesn't offer a systemic view of the human constitution, the way Western medicine likes to make charts and diagrams and say this is exactly how the heart is connected to the brain and the nervous system and the lungs and, you know, the one thing we can't really explain is how the spirit, how a you can't measure the life force in the moment, you know, someone's life leaves their body. No one really understands that. 
The Bible doesn't offer a systemic explanation of how everything in the human body is connected, but it does offer a general sense that humans certainly have both physical and intangible properties. What you can see and touch and what you can't see and touch. So the visible or physical aspect of human, humans uh, throughout Scripture, you might see described in terms of flesh and bones, or um, the body and the members of, of the body, like arms and legs, or the outer person versus the inner person. You know, we know that inside there's just more flesh and blood, right? But metaphorically speaking, the inner person, we're speaking about the intangible, spiritual person. And these terms in the Bible, they're, inter- they're interchangeable. They don't indicate separate aspects, right? So even, even talking about intangible, um, the heart, for example, it can be a physical organ, but they didn't know much about biology and physicality, the difference between the heart and the mind. In the Old Testament, there is no difference. It's not referring to physical organs as much as thoughts and feelings and the in- those intangible um, parts of the human experience. So the Bible certainly offers this kind of non-systemic but binary. There's definitely a two aspects to the human nature. There's the physical and non-physical. And I think next week, I do hope to focus a little more on the non-physical and have a little bit of fun. It's not systemic, so there's not a lot of the answers that we sometimes want aren't there, but it's still interesting to go in with an open mind and see what does the Bible say about, about that. Next week, Lord willing. In the meantime, the, in, the, in the here and the now, the physical world that we're reading about in Genesis, these humans, they made this critical failure. You can read about in Genesis 3. I'm not going to go into detail there. They made this failure. They, they rebelled against God. They were kicked out of the garden, but they sure succeeded in multiplying. And humanity has succeeded in multiplying. The, result, the resulting of generations of humans over millennia, all the way to us, has resulted in us inheriting everything. All of the the good, divine purpose and nature from Adam and Eve, that's all applies to us, as well as all of the the terrible consequences of their sin, also, and our own sin applies to us. So in this sense, humans in their current state are still being presented, um, or now being presented, as somewhat self-contradictory beings. We have contrasting characteristics even, even uh, before Christ, humans are presented as immortal beings and yet having these mortal bodies that pass away and yet there's still this sort of a shade of a person that exists and even interacts with the physical world. So that we have this divine value and purpose. We were created in the image of God and yet we still have, we have these evil desires, corrupted motives. I'll read a, a quick quote out of one of my Bible dictionaries that I really just appreciated the wording of um, in regards to this. When the breath of life, regarding to that, that life force, the spirit, departs a human body, that body returns to dust and the person survives only as an unsubstantial shade. I just like that phrase. The hope of a resurrection as portrayed in the New Testament involves the creation of new bodies for those who have died as opposed to the Greek concept of the dead continuing to survive as immortal souls. Which that latter concept tends to be maybe more similar to our modern Christian concept. Paul also speaks of Christ as creating a new humanity in which former divisions will be done away with. You can see that in Galatians 2.15, 3.28. 
So again, next week I want to go deeper into that unsubstantial shade. Just how substantial is that, that ghostly sprite that, that we see pop up throughout Scripture? It's interesting. It's, it's ambiguous, um, but it's still very much there, and it's, it's interesting to explore. So I'm excited for that, but today um, we're focusing on the, the here and the now. So these, these temporary dying but substantial bodies. I would say these bodies are somewhat substantial. These, they, we have this physical material that's been brought to life by the personal and animating presence of God. So what do we do with that? Human beings are the high point of, of God's creation. Human beings are alone created in God's image. Mud people, dust creatures that were given the breath of life and elevated above the rest of creation. It's absurd because we're not good rulers, we're physically weak, and in many ways we've failed to be good stewards. And I don't just even mean, you know, taking care of the earth and the climate, we don't even take care of each other. Like, we don't get along with each other. And yet, the fact that Yahweh put these silly toddlers in charge of his creation these dirt things, and that he, he reveals things. He tells secrets to children and nursing babies, the psalmist says. Just as a way to, to show how majestic and awesome God is, that he can do that, that his creation is so resilient, that he's so confident in his ability to create something good and to sustain that goodness for eternity it can be completely mismanaged by anyone to whom he's entrusting it. He knows what he's doing. He, he's going to bring it to order, to the, his own glory, and to the good of all of his people in the fullness of time, whether or not we can see that. We, we're dirt things that have been given life and authority on earth, but we're also very rebellious and messy, uncooperative, and stubborn. We choose our own way instead of choosing God's way, and that has caused all sorts of problems for us and even for the rest of creation. All of creation groans because of our sin. The most critical issues were ones that humans couldn't solve on their own, and God needed to solve them, and he did. Sin alienates humans from God and from each other, which completely cuts off their ability to fulfill their purpose. And we're unable to alter the situation on our own. So the salvation of humanity and the ability for us to, to do what we were made to rests totally upon the sacrifice of Jesus, which we receive only through grace, by grace, through faith. Without him, without God, we are nothing. And without Jesus, we have uh, really no purpose. Dust, mud, lifeless statues. But with God and by his grace and his power, we have not only life, but our very existence, the fact that we have life, testifies to the glory of God. How much more when we actually try to use that life to the glory of God. I'm going to read a few more passages out of Psalm um, that just kind of meditate on that truth, that really, aside from God, there is nothing else to this life. With God, there is so much to be grateful for, to live for, to hope for, to do, and to, to be grateful for. Without God, there's nothing. Psalm 73, 24 through 26 says, Whom have I... Actually, that is wrong. I don't know what, which verse that one is. 
Oh, that's verse 25? Sorry, yep, I have, I have verse 24 here. With your counsel you will lead me, and afterward take me in glory. That's verse 24. Putting his faith in God. I'm going to follow you. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh, my heart, fail. But God is the rock of my heart and my portion forever. Notice that what I told you about um, the heart in verse 26, flesh and heart, we might think of that as both being physical things, but here it's meant to be both my body and my heart as two contra- everything I am, my body and my soul, my heart is the part of me that thinks and feels, right? So my flesh and my heart, everything I am will fail, but God is the rock of my heart and my portion forever. Uh, Psalm 16, 5 uh, through 11 says, Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my inheritance is beautiful to me. I will bless Yahweh who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set Yahweh continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. There you go, both my heart and my flesh. For you will not forsake my soul to Sheol. You will not give your Holy One over to see corruption. You won't let me die. That's what he's saying. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. couple more quick. Psalm 144, 15. How blessed are the people for whom this is so? Blessed are the people. If this is true for you, you're blessed. How blessed are the people for whom God is Yahweh? It's kind of a backwards way of saying it, but he's saying if Yahweh is your God, you're blessed. The people for whom Yahweh is their God, they are blessed people. Isaiah 12, 2. It says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not dread for Yah, Yahweh himself, is my strength and song. And he has become my salvation. Jesus is the physical human manifestation of God's salvation. The ultimate azer for all mankind. Even his name, it means Yahweh saves because he saves his people from their sins. I'm going to wrap up uh, today. I think it's only fitting that we go to John chapter 9. This passage is a great one. It's where um, Jesus heals a blind man. And I've known this story for many years, but it wasn't until I heard my father-in-law teach through it and kind of share his perspective on it. It gave me a new perspective that I really love. And it's been a few years. Melissa's nodding. Do you remember uh, the mud and spit? It's, it's great. Um, some of you might remember, it's, so it'll be a good reminder. Uh, but let's, let's read John chapter 9. I do have this one up on the screen as well. As he passed by, Jesus is walking, he's with his disciples. He passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? They just assume must be because of sin. Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. 
But this was so that the works of God might be manifested in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said said this, he spat on the ground, made clay of the saliva, and rubbed the clay on his eyes and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Shalom, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he is like him. And, or he is like him. He just looks like him. He's similar. Um, he kept saying, No, I am the one. <laughs> I was blind. So they were saying to them, How then? How were your eyes opened? He answered, The man who is called Jesus made clay, rubbed my eyes, and said to me, at this point I wonder he was blind. I don't know if he knew the clay was made out of Jesus' spit, because he was blind when he was making the spit. It's kind of gross. I just realized that. (laughs) Jesus made clay somehow. (laughs) Rubbed my eyes and said to me, go to Shalom and wash. And I went away and washed and received sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. So Jesus had left by now. So at face value, we see in this story, someone's life, this blind person who, especially in that society, would have been otherwise very insignificant and yet used in a way that we're still talking about, reading about thousands of years later. And that was part of the point Jesus was making, was that it didn't, that man didn't have had to have sinned or his parents had to have sinned for him to be blind. There could be something else that we haven't thought of. And that's often the case when we don't understand why God would allow something to happen. But then the, the perspective that Tim Kubaki, who we have them in our prayer list, I think, this week. Um, Tim, his wife Betsy, serve in, in Angola in Africa, and he's a, he's a medical missionary, so he's very interested in, in healing, and he loves to you know, read about Jesus' healing. And I think often we see in ourselves maybe the blind man or maybe the, the skeptics. There's a lot of ways we can kind of you know, tag yourself, so to speak, in that story and relate to different people in the story. And what was just so cool to hear from, from Tim, and the way he sees himself in this story, is just the mud and spit in Jesus' hands. Because that's really all we all are, is mud and spit. <laughs> but if it's Jesus' spit, <laughs> then that's pretty awesome. Mud. If it's God's breath of life in us, that's holy and precious, and we are tabernacles of his presence, and that's amazing. What a beautiful thing to realize that we are but mud and spit, and to release any uh, thoughts of needing to be glamorous or to have our own glory or significance other than being (laughs) pebbles and dirt and dust. That's all we are. But how thrilling is it to be used in the hands of Jesus, to be powered by the God of the universe, to bring life and light and healing in the midst of darkness. And the last passage I'll leave you with, 1 Corinthians 6. I'm going to start in verse 14. That mud and spit, it may seem like just a gross dripping wad of of mud in your hand, but it was purchased at great cost. 1 Corinthians 6, 14. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? 
Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. In this context, he's talking about our bodies being a sanctuary in the context of, of sexual morality, but it applies really to any realm of life. Sexual purity is something that's very important to God and always was important in his laws and statutes with his people. He wanted that to be known. But we should be characterized. By that. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just, I thank you. I glorify you for who you are and your, your name and your majesty and your power is so great and so far beyond us that we can't even imagine uh, how powerful you are and, and the creation of the whole universe that we are just these tiny little specks of dust in the midst of all that you've given us life and honor and chosen us to be your active participants in caring for your creation. Lord, we just repent and we're sorry for our sins against you and against each other, the ways that we are uh, failing our relationships with each other and failing to love each other the way that you love us, failing to seek you and honor you and glorify you with everything we are, our hearts, our souls, and, and our might and our strength and our bodies, everything that we are, Lord. We want all of it to to glorify you. So we apologize for when we don't, but we are so grateful for your son and for your mercy and your grace that has just so far surpasses anything that we could ever do to um, to wrong you. It all falls away when you when we are covered by, by your mercy. Lord, I thank you for that. Help us to uh, just live more and more each day like we are your chosen precious children with the humility of knowing that we are but nothing if we're not in your hands. But let us taste the joy and the, the true pleasure of living for you and living surrendered to your will and the, the leading of your spirit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, stick